This is the Clinical Consult. I'm Daniel Elkert, your host, and today I'm joined by Dr. Samuel Lusgarden of the University of Wisconsin-Madison to walk me through some more technical issues that health service psychologists may face on the topic of telehealth or telepsychology. And just a note at the outset here, nothing in this podcast is made to promote legal advice in any particular situation. And the items that we'll discuss moving forward with Sam are for the purposes of general information only. And so with that said, Sam, I, I wanna thank you for joining me on the program and looking forward to a good conversation. Absolutely, it's great to be here with you. So Sam, I, I know that you have written quite a bit about telepsychology. Uh, you've hit major journals like American Psychologist, and you've done a number of professional trainings on this topic as well. Um, but just to start us off, I, I want to hit some basics. When did telepsychology services in the mental health realm first pop up? We're going to have to go way back then, Danny. Way back. Okay. Yeah, Take me there. Way back. Because that question is a, is a great one. And it makes me think of one of the first studies. When I was doing some of the bulk of the research you were referencing, the first studies I could find were from the 60s, oddly enough. Wow. And they were two-way communication via TV. And people were separated between different rooms. I, and if my memory serves, it was sort of in a group context in particular. But yeah, it was two-way communication via TV, and it was in the 60s. So in some ways, this goes way, way back. It does go back. And so I, I think just if you'd allow me to jump forward a couple decades here, uh, okay. kind of to this current moment, kind of where we're at presently, a lot of times psychologists, health service psychologists are put in these situations where they're presented with providing mental health services, either through a tablet, through via text message, you know, through their computer, but the services that they provide cross state lines. So we've heard about instances of an employee assistant program that crosses a state line or for a psychologist doing lethality screenings in a hospital that say is just just beyond the state border where that psychologist is is in practice what are some factors that psychologists absolutely need to be con be considering when they're when they're presented with that with that situation yeah, this is a really important point and one that I've been contending with both from a research, consultation, and practice point of view. We are still very much, as a field, establishing the standard of care and legal precedent. When I say standard of care, I sort of mean like the best practices around technology. And secondarily, when I say legal precedent, I mean people have been tried and this is a case where technology was involved in some way or shape or form in the provision of a mental health service or even a medical service. And so I'm pretty cautious when it comes to going across state lines because in many ways, now we're at almost like a federal level. When you think about crimes occurring across state borders or in a complex kind of nature like that, that often involves like the FBI. Um, but on a smaller scale, what I think about is, are you licensed in both places? Because this is a complex area of the legal literature. 
where are you doing therapy when you're at one place and point in time and your client is in another location? It actually, in many ways, can be reflected in state boundaries, but also international, different countries. So let's say I have a client, you know, I'm here in Wisconsin. Let's say I have a client that goes to Illinois, for instance. Now, if I'm not licensed in the state of Illinois, I need to be considerate at very least to what my state's licensing body in Wisconsin believes about telepsych and what the state of Illinois is at very least. And potentially that would necessitate me being licensed in both places, but that's highly dependent on your legal situation and goes back to your disclaimer at the very start. But I think that we can even extrapolate that further. What if I don't know where my client is? Is that plausible deniability suddenly that, you know, I'm practicing within my state boundary, even if I don't know where my client is? Or what if it's across country borders? If my client has suddenly gone on a business trip to Toronto in Canada, what now? So you've really hit on that issue. I mean, and you sort of read my mind here because that's where my next question was going. I mean, at first I was thinking, oh, this state by state issue is a concern, but then what if they go to a different country? You mentioned Canada. I'm thinking about all different types of of situations. So what what are kind of the big bucket differences that we would want to be thinking about versus, okay, my clients in goes from Wisconsin to Illinois versus my client goes from Wisconsin, like, like you said, to Canada or, or to China or to another country? Well, when you mentioned specifically China and maybe an allusion to other countries, I think it's really important for us to be thinking about our ethnocentric viewpoint on data and privacy. You know, we are here in the United States for the most part. And most psychologists, at least in North America, are following the legal regulations that are set forth and have a huge precedent legally. Things like HIPAA, high tech. In Canada, there's things like PHIPAA, PIPIDA. Those are provincial and national level things that protect privacy around medicine or mental health. That question, though, becomes increasingly more important when you have your clients leaving the country at any point, because when you leave the country, you are subject to additional screening and search, both by the country you're leaving and the country you're going into. And there are some countries that take a keener eye on looking at devices and inspecting the information that may be stored on them than others. So if I'm text messaging a client, for instance, who you know, I work with many international students. Let's say one of my international students leaves the country and goes to China where they traditionally live during the breaks. And, and so they're taking their device and let's say I've text messaged with them. Well, importantly, I think as a provider, we with such power bear a great deal of responsibility to know in the hands of other people how might this data be construed? How might this clinical information be taken from my client? So those are unique questions that we we would want to be asking, you know, in that sort of international situation where where the provider's in one country and the client's in the other. I do want to rewind just just a moment here because you you rattled off a couple of bigger acronyms. I, I I know HIPAA, but could you walk me through high tech? I heard you say that one. Yeah, well, 
the history as I understand it is that HIPAA was first, and that stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it defined the provisions and protections for clients and patients, both within medical and mental health. Inside HIPAA includes some language around about 18 particular identifiers that fall under this category of HIPAA. They can include things like names, addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses that give off location information of a client, email, things like that. Under that though, it's also important that high tech came out a little bit later as a realization that medical services are using technology with increasing prominence. And high tech allowed providers to sign third party agreements. They're called business associate agreements. And that's what I credit high tech for in particular is that there are business associate agreements that came out of that. And what that might look like is if, for example, you stored client data on Google's services and their servers, you might want to sign a business associate agreement with them, which basically says if it's Google's fault and they leak data and it's on their end, not yours as a provider, then they bear much of the responsibility for any lawsuits that may follow. Okay, so is this is this specific to each country as well, kind of like the, those agreements, that, this agreement that you're outlining? Does something like that look different in, in, in the EU versus in, in Canada or? That's a really great question. You know, I like to think of Europe as being very forward thinking when it comes to privacy laws and data protection. Uh, specifically though, I can talk about the regulations that Canada has, they have a national one that's called PIPITA, and then they have two provincial ones that are very important when I'm talking to providers, uh, PHIPA, which is in Ontario, and PIPA, which is for British Columbia. So those are the two provincial laws. They're modeled and moded very similarly to HIPAA and high tech. These, are, these would be considered analogous. I see. So I also want to shift the discussion a little bit back to um, kind of more of a, a, a situation within the United States, and, and if there are provisions or, or, or specific sort of practice agreements that allow or would facilitate kind of telehealth services across different states. And I, I'm aware of there's one that SIPAC, the Psychology Interjurisdictional Compact. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit about about SIPAC and, and your understanding of that and yeah, my understanding is that SIPAC is this agreement which allows them to form this psychological compact, if you will, of states that agree, at least on a temporary basis, to allow providers to provide their service across state lines. I see. That's definitely something good to, to be aware of. And then if I might ask a more, a more targeted question here, Sam, and kind of with the understanding that I don't intend to, to seek out a formal recommendation on, on your part. What, what are some popular options for telehealth services that health service psychologists have used that maybe are, are to the extent that, that is possible kind of uh, cognizant of, of some of these HIPAA and high-tech provisions? Are, are there platforms that people will commonly use? 
Well, we've got a couple different ones right off the top that are managed by Google. So Google has a business grade HIPAA compliant teleconferencing software. You have to sign that business associate agreement with them to make that more HIPAA compliant. Um, there are companies like VC, video, therapy sites, and then there are types of technology such as Adobe Connect, Cisco WebEx, GoToMeeting, LiveMeeting. These all provide varying degrees of teleconferencing software and varying degrees of agreement with HIPAA compliance. And again, like you're saying, none of these do I endorse or say this one's better than the other, but there are a variety of different technologies that providers can look into if they're interested in it. Yeah, I get the sense from our conversation that you know, as, as a discipline, we're really moving into to new territory here. I mean, this is, you, you use that phrase kind of wild west at the beginning and I'm starting to have a deeper appreciation for, for what you're meaning. I, I just get the sense that you know, things are moving really quickly and in many cases, you ask good questions. What's, what's the legal precedent? How do health service psychologists make decisions if, if they're, do they have the training? to do something like this? Like what are the limitations in existing research? I mean, these are, these are really important questions. I know you're, you're talking about this. I'm just kind of connecting with your comments at the, out, at, our, at the start of our, our conversation today. Right, yeah, I, I think a lot about training in technology. Where do we get that training? And yet we're practicing on a regular basis and we're interacting with it. You know, I think we take it for granted that we're using electronic medical records, we're emailing, we're sending secure messages, we're text messaging, we're doing video conferencing. We do assessments via iPad, like Q Interactive, Q Global, Pearson's product. We have a variety of technologies that we're using on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, when we take this and, and try to make an analogy out of it, you know, for my practice, I have turned to the research and gotten significant training in the therapies that I use. And yet, when I look at my graduate school experience, I see little preparation for the technology that I use, especially in a psychotherapeutic setting. Right, and so when we, when we don't have that sort of specialized didactic training that you'd receive in a, in a graduate school context, I mean, where are psychologists to turn to? Is this a continuing education concern? Is this an ethical matter where each of us individually need to equip ourselves with this type of knowledge? Um, I, I don't know that maybe there isn't a singular answer to that question, but I, I definitely feel sort of compelled to like, I need to, I need to educate myself on many of these topics even further. Yeah, I like your, your perspective that, that this takes multiple prongs to be able to provide solutions to this problem. Not any one thing could solve it. But I do think a lot about our ethics code and our APA accreditation for graduate school training programs as being an opportunity to incorporate specific language about technology and telepsych use. This is an opportunity that we have. People are going to be using this more and more frequently. There are nearly 4 billion people that access the internet across this world. And I think it's a reasonable expectation that people will want to be using technology when they're engaged in psycho psychological services. For me, I want to be able to have providers well-trained 
and prepared to take on the complications and confusion that can result when you're using it. You know, there are these little things that I think about as like threats to technology use. And you ask, you know, should they attend, should, should providers attend continuing education courses? I'd say, yes, of course. But I don't know that providers know oftentimes that they should be there sitting in that class. When I say threats to technology use, I go back to this idea that we're not communicating with clients in a vacuum when we text message or televideo, uh, teleconference with them. They may have a device and we have a device, but there are many intervening factors that we need to be thinking about. They can be as broad as governments, organizations, collectives, individual hackers that are just interested in the data that are on these devices, or there could be partners, relatives, friends, roommates, or random people in clients or even in my life or in your life that are potentially limiting the privacy and confidentiality that we say we're ensuring our mm -hmm. clients. The way I, I try to simplify that is by saying, Danny, if I sent you an email today and it said sam lustgarten one at gmail.com, would you know the difference? Would you be ready for that difference? Because I say this as an illustration of somebody could act like my client and say, hey, I'm interested in getting my records forwarded, or I'm curious to know more about what you talked about in our therapy session. Um, it seemed really important. And if I'm posing hmm. as if the client by just changing that email address, will you know to be critical of that? Will you be ready? These are all great questions. And I can tell you that I wish I had the specific answers to those in particular, but I'm, I'm gonna have to, as I think many of us will, continue to reflect on this. And I know that the discipline will, and I, I definitely wanna thank you for you know, all of the, the insight that you've provided today, Sam. I, I feel enlightened, I feel motivated to go forward and equip myself with some of this knowledge because like you said, we're, we're, we're in a world now where people are using the telehealth programs at a, at a very rapid and escalating pace. And so health service psychology needs to respond um, and, and meet the needs of those clients. So Sam, I, I want to thank you for, for your time today and just kind of remind our listeners that, you know, of course, nothing that we've shared in this podcast, as I mentioned, is meant to provide or serve as legal advice in any kind of particular situation. We're hopeful that it can uh, start an interesting conversation and serve kind of a general information purpose, but definitely want to, to thank you for your time and remind our listeners that this has been the Clinical Consult, brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.